0: You know, this is uh, one of the primary ways every year that we reach out into our community. So this year, we really are excited about inviting the body to come and kick that off on the 23rd. So we hope that you'll kind of pencil that in your calendar. More information will be coming next week, as you heard. Um, But we really would love to have everybody who can be there be there to cover this event throughout the week in prayer. My name is Matt Russell. I'm the pastor of Equipping. Equipping. And I get the privilege of speaking to you today. I was supposed to speak a month ago, but there were some changes in the schedule. So some of you probably have noticed that we skipped over a section of Mark. Did anybody notice? Like three people. Okay. Um, Well, good. We skipped over a section of Mark. And for those three people that noticed, I wanted to let you know that that's what our passage is today. That we're going back to Mark 2 uh, 1 through 12. We've been talking about religious practices and, uh, and specifically making application to our own uh, current reality in church. And now we're going to go back and talk about a specific healing that Jesus did in Mark 2. Um, I want us to read it together so you can get the whole story. It's Mark 2, 1 through 12, and I just want to read it to you. If you don't have your Bible, just listen and um, listen to the story as it unfolds. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Pray with me. Lord, we often come to church as a course of of habit, And sometimes we forget that it's your spirit that is the one that's teaching us. So I pray that in each of our hearts in this room, that there would be a desire to learn from you, that we would ask you specifically to teach us, and that we would faithfully respond to what we hear. In Christ's name, amen. You know, recently I was reading an article online about the rise of atheist churches yeah, I did the same thing. Let it sink in. Church in the dictionary is defined as a building for the public worship of God, a religious for religious service. The Bible as you know defines the church as a people, an assembly of people being transformed into Christ likeness. But there's this, this movement, this rise of atheist churches. It's hard for us to reconcile the incoherence they described themselves like this, a godless congregation that will meet on the first Sunday of every month to hear great talks, sing songs, and generally celebrate the wonder of life. In another article, those involved in these atheist congregations describe themselves as longing for the support of community and fellowship without any judgment or expectation to modify thinking or behavior according to some established doctrine. Yeah, you know, they say, quote, we are born from nothing and go to nothing. Let's enjoy it together. Ironically, there have actually been splits already in the atheist church (laughs) over doctrine and, believe it or not, over accusations that all that church wants is your money. Hey, you know, we actually learned something really key about the human heart, though, in this. Man was made for worship and transcendence. Yeah. He was created with a longing to belong and be in community. While Christianity naturally offers to meet these needs that are built into every human heart, what defines Christianity is not fellowship in a strong community. It is not social justice programs or even educational programs. That is not what defines the church. This morning, we're going to be another, looking at another Jesus encounter as Jesus encounters man's greatest, our greatest need. The most distinctive benefit that Christianity offers the world is not sacrificial love for others, a high standard of morality, or a sense of purpose and satisfaction in life. All of those virtues are byproducts of biblical Christianity, but they are far from Christianity's greatest gift to humanity. The gospel offers one surpassing benefit that transcends all others and is provided by no other religion. It is distinctive. A solution for humanity's fundamental and far-reaching problem, namely the reality that sinners stand guilty before a holy God. That's by John MacArthur. What distinguishes Christianity from every other belief system? The understanding that it is sin in the heart of man that needs an answer. In our passage this morning, we'll be catching up with Jesus after he's been traveling around the Galilee region preaching. Remember, Doug preached a sermon about the leprous man who was healed, and then he told the man not to tell anybody that he had healed him. Just go show yourself to the priest That the sores are gone so that you can re enter community. Did the man follow his instruction? No. And what ends up happening is Jesus, the scripture says, is no longer free to enter the towns. He can no longer freely enter the towns. He's doing ministry out of the towns, and throngs of people are coming to him for what? For healing. So now he has come back to Capernaum. We're not entirely sure why he's back there, but Capernaum is known as Jesus' hometown and he, where he stayed with Peter. And it's not unlikely that this, this event that I just read to you from Mark 2, it's not unlikely that that's happening in Peter's home. Mark 2, 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even at the door. And he was speaking the word to them. They've heard he's back. They've come in throngs to this small, they were small homes. We've seen them there in Capernaum in in Israel. They're very small and they have packed it full of people to hear Jesus teach. And the scripture says he was speaking the word to them. Now I thought this was very important that we understand what was this word he was speaking? Don't you want to know? what was it he was telling them? Because this is his message. This is what he's doing. Well, Mark gives us some clues in his gospel. If we look at Mark 1, 37 and 38, it says, they found him, his disciples, and said to him, everyone is looking for you. For what? For healing. Let's, he said to them, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that Is why I came. It's important for us to understand why Jesus came because understanding why Jesus came sets our expectations correctly. Because oftentimes we have expectations of Jesus and God that He never promised us. We expect a life full of ease or a life of healing or a life without difficulty and strife. We expect oftentimes by our behavior a life without sin, and yet sin resides in us. So understanding why Jesus came is important for us at this time so that we understand what Jesus' purpose is and thereby what our purpose is. But we still don't know what the word was that he was preaching. Then we have to go back further in Mark, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John, that's John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. His message is the kingdom of God has dawned in time and space for humanity. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Turn away from going your own way and look to him. Believe. Trust in Place your trust in. Jesus went preaching this gospel through all of Galilee. It was his message. And gospel literally means good news. Now these things you know. Jesus was telling them the good news. What was the good news? You can be free from the bondage of sin and death you can be free from that bondage of fear. What does it mean for us today in the church? Jesus came preaching the good news, and then when he left, he commissioned us to do what? To preach the good news, right? Folks, it's my fear that in the church, even in our church, we have made church about us. The services that we gain from the church, the things that we get, the programs that we want. The church does not exist to provide programs for men and women's ministry. The church does not exist to provide educational programs. The church does not exist to provide connection opportunities. Those are good things that the church does because it exists to preach the gospel. Do you see? We've put, and all of us in our humanity, often put those temporary things ahead of the eternal thing. And we have to understand, we come to a church not to get, but to give, and to be built up together as a body who then goes out and gives more. Because that's what Jesus did, you see. You can be set from the law of sin and death. You can encounter life-transforming forgiveness. I don't know what your story is today. You may need healing, and I want to affirm that we should pray for healing. God still heals today. And we should trust, when we've prayed for healing, we should trust him in what he does or doesn't do. Because God's primary purpose is in sending Jesus, Jesus' primary purpose for being on the planet was to preach the good news that you can be set free from the sin, from sin and death. How can we set free? How can we be made whole from brokenness? repent, turn from your own way and believe, place trust in. This is what we're going to be talking about. From our passage today, I want to tell you three truths that I believe can help us experience this life-transforming, encounter this life-transforming forgiveness. Mark says, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Sounds strange in our hearing because we think of our own homes, but the roofs were made out of sticks, straw, and mud, and they were actually replaced and repaired every year. Uh, before and after the rainy season. It, it's just a constant maintenance. And it wouldn't have been that difficult to dig through. And they did. Now, it was probably really inconvenient. And Peter was probably not really excited about this. But they were able to do this. And you can imagine Jesus being mid-sentence and uh, dust and then dirt and people look up and, and now chunks are falling down inside and they're hoping that it's not falling on him. And you can see Jesus looking up and these four faces kind of look in and go, Ugh. you know, and they pull back and they let down the pallet, into the room. And, and here's where there's kind of an unexpected turn in the story. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? You ever had a present that you couldn't wait to open, and you open it, and you were like, ew. I mean, maybe don't say that loud if it was something somebody near you gave you, but... Um, yeah, I mean, as a kid, you know, you open up a present and it's socks <laughs> or underwear. <laughs> Necessary. Well, I think so, but, but not all that exciting. And I wonder if that's what the four friends felt a little bit like, you know. What did they expect? They've been hearing that this preacher's been going around and he's been preaching this, this new word with authority, the Scripture says. They, they understood his authority, and then he was healing people all over the place that he went. Of course, they wanted, them to, he, they wanted him to heal their friend. The friend wanted healing. Did the friend have a need for healing? Yes, especially, I mean, yes, in our culture, but especially in that culture, which is agrarian, and, and how do you make a living? How do you support your family or support yourself? And so the man needed healing, and they took him to him, and then Jesus looks at him and says, son, and they think, oh, here it comes your sins are forgiven. What? But that makes total sense if we understand what Jesus came for, see? And that's sometimes how we encounter, we pray for healing and we think, but why, Lord? But Jesus came to heal the spirit. Jesus came to heal something far more broken than our bodies. If we are going to experience that life-transforming forgiveness, we have to believe first that our primary, our greatest need is not physical, but it's spiritual. Jesus's presence in this world is not in temp, simply intended to make our temporal lives easier. He didn't come primarily, primarily to heal physical illness. When would it end? Do you realize that every person Jesus healed or raised from the dead got sick and died again? We live in a world that has been infected with and um, uh, infected with sin. It, it affects every part of our lives. And creation, Romans 8 says, and creation itself. Jesus didn't come for a temporary fix of physical healing or even circumstantial change. But that's difficult for us because so often we don't think our greatest need is. Spiritual, we think our greatest need is physical, whether it be physical healing or uh, circumstantial changes. And here's the problem when we seek after God for those desires that we have made into needs, we ultimately make Him a means to an end, not the end itself. Listen, when we seek after God for desires, that we have made into needs, we inevitably make God a means to an end and not the end himself. He becomes the tool by which we try to get what we need or want. God will never be your means to an end. He will never be my means to an end, although I have tried to make him one. Why? Because God is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the ultimate reality and He is what all creation was created for and toward. Jesus is illustrating His gospel message in healing this man's soul. He's telling all that are there why He's come. He's come. To bring life transforming forgiveness. There's a spiritual paralysis and a brokenness in every one of them that they need to see. And there's a spiritual paralysis and brokenness in every one of us. And apart from Jesus Christ, we remain paralyzed. Physical healing and circumstantial change are temporary, but the the, the spiritual healing that Jesus offers is eternal. When man was created, he was created with a love relationship with God, but sin quickly entered the world in the narrative, the fall. Man rebelled against God, and this is not new, I know. This is what separates us from God, our sin. And people often ask, how? Why does sin specifically separate us from God? Or they'll ask things like, why would a loving God, maybe you've heard this, why would a loving God send people to hell? Have you heard this? Folks, a loving God doesn't send people to hell. The scripture says in John 3 18 through 20, we're already going there. That's why John 3.16 can so clearly affirm for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Do you see? That is the love of God in Jesus because this is a reality that every single one of us knows and understands. God is holy, and we'll hear often that God cannot be in the presence of sin. Have you heard this? God cannot be in the presence of sin. God can be everywhere. He's omnipresent. What we're saying is God cannot be in union with sin, and that should be an encouragement to our hearts because that's why we were created See, we have all levels of intimate relationships, intimacy. We have strangers, acquaintances, friends, and family, right? We have people that we don't share things with because we don't trust them. We have people that we do share things with because we trust them. And we hope that our relationships are growing more and more transparent and more and more intimate as we live out the gospel. But who defines the relationship we have with God, us or God? God. God. He defines the relationship based upon how he created us for a relationship of oneness. It's where we get this idea of union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We become in union with him, and that's how we have a relationship with God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not that God can't be in the presence of sin. He can't be in union, and this should encourage us because this is what he longs for and desires and he has made a way for This is why Jesus has come, to preach the good news that God has made a way for us to be reconciled and reunited. Oops. Mark 2, 6 through 7, but some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak like uh, that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Were they Right? Yeah, they're right. They know exactly who can forgive sins, um, and sin is an offense against God, and they recognize that rightly. Our culture doesn't think of sins as an offense against God primarily. Our culture thinks of sin as an offense against my own sensibilities, my own morality, or my sense of values, or maybe, maybe in hurting somebody else. But often in our culture, we don't think this is an offense against the holy God First, it may be where we get this idea of forgiving yourself. Have you heard this before? Well, you just need to forgive yourself. I just need to learn to forgive myself. Yourself isn't the primary one offended. You don't need to forgive yourself. You need to receive. I, I need to receive the forgiveness that God is extending through Jesus. Do you see? Forgiving ourselves is only a way of um, relying on my self-righteousness to get me to God. I don't want to rely on my self-righteousness because I don't have any. I need Jesus's righteousness. The teachers of the law understood that you were forgiven by God, but they believed you had to go make a sacrifice, and then your sins were covered for a time until you sinned again, and you made another sacrifice. And there's this pattern of going to worship and being covered again for a time until you sin again, and then back and forth, back and forth. Jesus has just declared that he is forgiving this man's sin. What is he saying? He is saying he is God. People who claim that Jesus never claimed to be God haven't read the scriptures carefully because they know that he's declaring he's God because they accuse him of blasphemy and ultimately that's what they want to crucify him for. They claim he's blaspheming. I can't forgive somebody who offends you if I say, don't worry about it. I know you hurt that person, but I forgive you. That makes no sense. Only the person who's offended can forgive. And Jesus, seeing this man come down into the room, says, son, your sins are forgiven. He was identifying himself as the man, the one who was offended and who could, can forgive sin. The second truth that we have to understand, first, our greatest need is spiritual, not physical. Second, we have to believe that Jesus alone forgives sin. That seems painfully simple, but let me drive that point home a little more. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus tells his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. In, first, in John 3, 34 through 35, Jesus tells Nicodemus, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes the son is eternal life, But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. The only way to remove the wrath of God is to believe in the Son. In Acts 4, 12, Peter declares that there is no other name than Jesus under heaven by which men must be saved. 1 John 1, 8 through 2, 1. If we say that we have no sin, We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, so you can avoid sin. And if anyone sins, to know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and, to and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation means the satisfaction. Many of you have been believers for a long time and this is a truth that you know. It's elementary. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what it means to be a Christian. But before you get too frustrated you know, coming to hear something you've already heard before, I want to ask you a question. Does knowing the gospel, is knowing the gospel and living the gospel the same thing? No. Every day I find in my life that I have to preach the gospel to myself and remember the truths of the gospel because the gospel touches every circumstance. It touches every relationship. It touches every hardship. And if I believe the gospel, then I will live out the gospel in my relationships. We can have knowledge of the truth, but the goal of the Christian life is not simply to know more things. It's to be transformed into a new person to look like Jesus. Let me give you some examples. If I believe that Jesus alone can forgive my sin and will forgive my sin based on his righteousness and not mine, then I will not be afraid or too prideful to admit my failures and my brokenness when I see them. Because Jesus forgives and will forgive. I will quickly ask God and others for forgiveness because I believe I've already been forgiven in Jesus and he has promised to continue to forgive me. I will gladly extend forgiveness to those who have hurt me. First, in my heart, because I know the work that God has done for this sinner, and then, when and if the person confesses and repents, I will offer them forgiveness gladly because of the work that God has done in my life, because Jesus forgives sin. Do you see that? And I will know that this person doesn't primarily need my forgiveness. This person who sinned against me needs his Forgiveness, because Jesus alone has the authority on earth to forgive sin. If I miss my quiet time, I will not fear my standing with God because my dedication and my sincerity is not what saves me. Jesus' righteousness and death on the cross shed blood and life saves me. I will no longer put my hope in the performance of the acceptance, or the behavior of other Christians. When they fail me, I'm not undone because Jesus alone forgives me and saves me. Do you see that? How much pain and difficulty we endure in the Christian church? How many people have said they've been hurt by the church? I don't deny that. I know I've hurt people because of my sin, and it's not unlikely that, I've been hurt by people because of my sin. Do you see? But what would be different in our experience of one another if we truly lived out the the idea, the belief, that Jesus alone forgives sin, that he alone is the one who saves? Earlier, Dallas was praying and referencing a passage that says, uh, keep our eyes focused on the eternal and not the temporal. That's Colossians 3. We need to keep our eyes focused on the gospel because the gospel is all-encompassing. You may be here for the first time and not know that Jesus alone forgives sin. I truly hope there's somebody in this room or over in the South Auditorium who has never heard this because I would love to be the one to tell you. Jesus alone forgives sin. I have been all over the world And when I begin to describe sin to people in all cultures that I've personally been in, they understand it. I don't go through a long teaching of sin because there is something internal in every individual that knows we're just not quite right. Right? We all know, we've known it for our entire lives. I want to be better. I'll try to be better. Why? What some people don't know is that that reality actually points to a moral law giver and is an evidence for the existence of God. However, this has never been a problem for me to explain. It is the human condition. And this is why Jesus came. Because people, the only option now is people know there's something wrong, so how do I fix it? So some people rely on the scales of justice. They say things like, well, as long as my good outweighs my bad, then I'm okay. The problem is, that's never been taken care of, and I always ask a person, that's a a plan, and not a great plan, because how have you been doing with doing good now, turning over a new leaf and not doing bad, Eh, not so good. Well, compared to others, I'm pretty good. Compared to who? Well, I've never murdered anybody. They always go to murder, right? Well, good. Or they rely on Christian activities. You know, they do the motions and go through the motions of Bible reading and maybe Bible reading, uh, going to church, giving money to the poor, doing good things. Those good things never get us to God. Why? Because we have a barrier between us and God called sin that's in each of us. This is why Jesus came, listen, not primarily to change our physical condition or to change our circumstances, but to give us an answer for the sin problem. Well, immediately, Jesus was aware in his spirit that they were astonished and reasoning with that, uh, that way within themselves. He said to them, they were reasoning, how can he forgive sin? Remember, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say get up and pick up your pallet and walk but so that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins I say to you he turns to the paralytic get up pick up your pallet and go home and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they all were amazed and were glorifying God saying we have never seen anything like this which is easier On the one hand, we know that the the spiritual healing happens with no physical external sign. So it would be easy to say your sins are forgiven. There's no proof, right? But is physical healing really harder for Jesus? I mean, didn't he just say, get up? And the guy got up? So as we think about that, I'm wondering if in some ironic way that actually The much harder thing is to forgive sin because the healing is temporary and he's God showing himself with authority over all things. But to forgive sin, he has to go to the cross and take on the full wrath of God for all humanity upon himself. Jesus not only forgives this man's sin But he also heals him. In this case, as a demonstration of his authority, physical healing as a testimony of Jesus' authority to forgive sin. This is important for us today because Jesus still heals today. We saw a testimony from Rebecca Saltzman about a month ago. The same day that we all stood, well, maybe many of us stood for prayer For physical healing. And as I stood for prayer to be healed that day, asking the Lord to heal me, which, by the way, as far as I know, has not happened, it occurred to me, listening to Rebecca's story, that her healing is for me too. Rebecca's healing is for me. It's for you. As we give testimony to that healing, it shows us that Jesus is still at work and he is, has authority over all of creation. It's a testimony of the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene where Aslan is uh, killed uh, by the white witch on the stone table. And Lucy and, and Susan are there and grieving. And they turn to go. And if you've seen the movie or read the book, you know that Aslan is raised again. And they can't, they can't understand what's happened. Aslan tells them, it means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there's a magic deeper still which she did not know her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned she would have read there a different incantation she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead the table would crack death death itself would start working backward jesus has brought in the kingdom of god Theologians call this the inauguration of the kingdom. He has inaugurated it. It's been begun. It's why we say as Christians that we begin eternity today. We don't get saved and wait to die, and then we're just holding on until we, you know, we got our bus ticket, let's go. But we begin an eternal relationship with God today. And death has begun to work backwards. Even in 1 Corinthians, we read, that death has lost its sting. No longer do I have to fear death. Now, I want to be honest, I have to remind myself of that truth, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, theologically and, and in reality, I don't have to fear death, but then I have to remind myself that my life is not my own, that I live at his pleasure, and this is not all there is. How many things in our life would be dealt with? Midlife crisis, if we understood that this life is not all there is we don't have to get our best now contrary to popular belief this is not your best life now so if we're going to experience life transforming reality of forgiveness we have to believe actively that believe actively that our deepest need is spiritual not physical not temporary and that Jesus alone forgives sins. But these are active beliefs. They are not simply mental exercises, but they're thoughts that drive action. The last truth that we'll talk about this morning is that we have to believe that faith is necessary to experience this forgiveness, and that faith is evidenced by action. Faith is trust. Belief in in something is trust in something. Faith and belief in Jesus is self-abandonment, relinquishing, surrendering our control. Many people accuse Christians of having blind faith. Basically, what they mean is the only way to believe in God is to close your eyes and step off and hope he catches you. I think of that just now, that moment in Indiana Jones, right? He didn't even have blind faith. He cast dirt on it so he'd know where the Faith is not how we know something. I'm going to say that again. I think this is important. Faith is not how we know something to be true. We use reason for that. If I need surgery, if I need surgery, I check all the doctors who do that surgery and I find out all I can about them. Right? And then once I've computed the facts and I've seen Uh, The evidence, then I have to place my faith in a doctor. Do you see? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But that passage that defines faith, but that passage then goes on to explain what that faith meant in all those men and women's lives. It meant action in the face of persecution, It meant action when it seemed safer to not act. Faith is not how we know something to be true. Faith is what we believe or what we have or function in when we know something is true. So where is that in this passage? And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get to him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying, and Jesus seeing their faith. Doesn't that strike you? We tend to think of faith being internal. It's how I think about things. No, that's thinking. He saw their faith. It motivated action. Faith is necessary. Faith is necessary, and it's evidenced by action. If we are going to experience that life-transforming forgiveness that Jesus offers, we have to believe. And belief is not something we just do with our mind. It's something we do with our whole being. It becomes core to our identity. Belief means I am ready to surrender to Jesus. It means that I am going to turn from my way Martin Luther tells us all of life is repentance, meaning we continually turn from our way and turn, repent, and turn to God's way and receive what he has for us. Sometimes we don't want what he has for us. When he's called us out to express our faith and maybe forgiving somebody or asking for forgiveness, and we don't want what he's offering Belief is repenting and receiving. There's a story of a man named Charles Blondin. He was a daredevil who crossed Niagara Falls on a tightrope. The crowd was mesmerized by his courage and his feats, and he did crazy stuff like he went out on the tightrope over across Niagara Falls and he sat down and had tea, or he did backflips, or he even crossed blindfolded one time with a sack on his head. And he went to the crowd one time and said, "Who thinks I can cross with one of you on my back?" Well, you know what? man named Harry Colcord believed Blondin could get him across and climbed on his back. Here's what Blondin told Harry Colcord. You are no longer Harry Colcord. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we both go to our death. Belief is trust. Do you see the parallel to our Christian lives? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we're going to experience that life transformation that the Christian life is all about, we have to know that our greatest need is not physical. It's not the things that we want changed in our lives. It's spiritual that Jesus alone forgives our sin. Stop working our way to him and trust him. And we've got to believe that faith is necessary and it's evidenced by action. The men are going to come forward and as they do, they have the elements of the Lord's table. Shirley's going to come and play um, quietly here and I just want you to hold those elements and I want you to consider. Have you placed your faith in Jesus, Have you received the forgiveness that he is offering you? Listen, this is not just for those who have never placed faith in Christ. This is those who claim faith in Christ. Go ahead and begin that, thanks. Those are for those who have already also placed faith in Christ to remind themselves again that I am in Jesus. Is there somebody that you need to forgive? First in your heart, and then if possible, communicate that forgiveness to them? Or is there somebody that you need to ask their forgiveness? What I find personally in the counseling that I do is the most difficult place that I find people, the place where I find people have the most difficulty seeking forgiveness is in their families. Their everyday relationships, the people who know them the best, Folks, that ought not be. That ought not be. If we believe that Jesus alone forgives sin, then we should repent and receive what he has for us. And that sometimes means humbling ourselves, going and asking first him and then them for forgiveness. Take some time and meet with the Lord. Lord, these elements serve as a testimony of the life-transforming forgiveness that you offer. As we take them, we are declaring to you that we have received that forgiveness. By taking them, we are saying that we have placed trust in you. Now, Lord, you know how much we all struggle to function, to live out this gospel message, especially in our families. Lord, we ask that you would help us to courageously turn from our own way and turn towards you and receive what you have for us, to demonstrate our belief by being reconciled with those that we are in broken relationship with. Lord, I pray that as we take these elements that we would commit to you to act on what you've shown us. And Lord, I pray that you will hound each one of us by your Spirit that you would give us no rest until we do the very thing that you've called us to do. Lord, we love you and we can't live this life apart from you, though we try. Help us to remain tied in to the vine by which we gain life. In Christ's name, amen. You can take the elements. A last word of encouragement for you. I've been grieved over the past few years as I've done counseling, the brokenness and the unwillingness to reconcile. That ought not be. If the Lord has put somebody in your heart and your mind that you know that you are holding bitterness, that there is something there, Jesus came to free you from that. That's why Jesus came. That you could have a life, an abundant life, even sick and with broken finances and broken down houses and cars, that you could have abundant life. So don't reject his offer. Do something today. My experience is if I get too far away from that moment where I'm convicted of something, It's all too easy just to let it ride. If you were motivated today to reconcile, reconcile. If we can pray for you in that, if we can help you in that, there's some folks across the way that would love to pray with you. We've got um, some elders and their wives and other folks to pray with you. And I hope and pray you have a great Sunday and a great week.